Yeah, so I was in Canada in, in 2018. I was lucky enough to be awarded a research scholarship to go over and spend three months uh, living and working in Winnipeg, which is a town, uh, a capital city in a central province on the prairies. So it's in Manitoba. Fun fact about Winnipeg was it, it was actually where they were going to have the capital city of Canada, but it was too close to the US border. So there was this fear of it being taken over in a way, which is is interesting because it's it's the site of what was called the Red River Rebellion, which was a rebellion that was led by Louis Rial. And Louis Rial was a leader of the Métis. And Métis are one of three indigenous groups in Canada. And Manitoba is the homeland of the Métis. So Métis are a distinct indigenous group of French, I believe, in, and European descent and also First Nations from Canada. But there's also, in the other groups, there's also First Nations in Canada and in Inuit who are more northern. So going to Winnipeg and, and Canada in general, I had this sense that things were better and relationships between a settler population and the Indigenous populations was, yeah, better than what, I guess, what we experience here at home. And uh, I was really rudely awoken when I got there and, and experienced and, and listened to the stories of local Indigenous people that things weren't as, as bright and happy as they might have seemed in the way it was portrayed. And in, in one sense that was really sad, but in another it, it made me feel as if the struggles that we go through here in Australia, we're, we're not alone in those. And the experience of colonisation, though different for different countries and contexts, still has fundamental similarities and the results of that are similar. In saying that, the way in which the populations deal with those challenges mm. and the strategies that they have and the way they connect to culture and continuously practice culture was really empowering. So. It made me want to create a, a network of, of Indigenous people globally to be able to share in these stories of challenge and struggle, colonisation, but also stories of triumph and community and culture and success, in a way, Indigenous success and Indigenous excellence. So it was... Yeah, it was a really powerful experience and something that definitely made me think a lot broader in, in coming home and reflecting on the challenges that I'd experienced here in Australia a lot more and from a different perspective. And, and I'm so grateful that uh, I got to spend time in Winnipeg, which is traditionally somewhere that's overlooked, like much like Adelaide, I guess, in the way that... You know, people say, why the hell would you go to Adelaide? And it's sort of in a similar way. It's like, why would you go to the prairies? There's nothing there. It's all flat. It's not the mountains. It's not the skiing. It's not Banff or Whistler. And I'm, I, I did spend a time in the ski fields, but nothing compared to the richness of what I, I experienced in Winnipeg. So, yeah.
This is Psychic. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today and pay my respects to the elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Shame, guilt and anxiety are emotions that everyone has experienced in their lives from time to time. Why do we feel these emotions? How does it impact our lives and our mental health? What can we do about it? The concept of shame to Australia's Indigenous people tends to be broader than non-Indigenous use of the word. Its meaning extends to include embarrassment in certain situations, often due to attention or circumstances rather than the result of an action by oneself. The feeling of shame can overwhelm and disempower a person. I'm Anne Abraham and this is Emily Ho and this is the Psychic Podcast. Our guest today is Seth Westhead, a research associate in Salbury who is interested in the fields of implementation science and Aboriginal health equity. Thank you for joining us on our show today. No worries. So to start off our show, tell us a bit more about yourself and your work in Aboriginal health. I'm Seth Westhead. I have family connections to the Awabakal and Wiradjuri nations of New South Wales. I was born in Bathurst in New South Wales and, and made my way down to Mildura. Grew up there, went to high school in Victoria and then came across to Adelaide about seven years ago now and have been a, a visitor on, on Ghana land for seven years and it's a very rich culture and I'm very grateful for the Ghana people and, and other Aboriginal people here in SA that have welcomed me and, and been able to show me a life in this part of the country. Yes, I've been in health research now, Aboriginal health research, for four years, which is not long uh, by any stretch. And I kind of stumbled across it. It wasn't my intention. When I started studying veterinary science back in 2013, and that had been my passion ever since I was really young, my dream, I guess. And then with within a few I guess it was around a year and a half I realised that it wasn't for me and that I, I really wanted to connect more with people. And mm-hmm. so I, I moved into a health sciences degree and while finishing my undergrad, I was involved in a lot of youth mentoring and primarily cultural youth mentoring with young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids around five, six, and then started doing more work with... 15, 16, 17 year olds, so transitioning from, I guess, junior high school through to senior high school where students are starting to think about what they're wanting to do in terms of career uh, and where they're wanting to go. So I was actually doing a youth mentoring job and we took a group of students through SAMRI and from that, I I guess (laughs) it just snowballed into opportunities that were presented. I did a summer scholarship with Waterloo Pringa, the Aboriginal health equity theme, and was offered a job at the end of that scholarship and found myself in health research while I was studying. While I was working, I was supported to study a, a master's in public health. And yeah, I, I've been there for, for the last four years. I started off doing a lot of work around the social determinants of health and found that what was absent in a lot of those models was cultural determinants of health, which are vitally important for Aboriginal people. You know, our culture is something that um, makes us who, who we are, really. 
and uh, I realised that in, in traditional models and ways of thinking about the social determinants of health, that was largely missing, or at least it was generalised, which wasn't going to work. Mm. And then started doing work around tool development for assessing quality of life and also models of social and cultural determinants of health, so how they could work together, how they did work together. It was very conceptual, but it was, I think, a great introduction for me because it allowed me to see things quite broad. From that, I I started doing some work in language, Indigenous language, and the impacts of Indigenous languages on well-being, the health and well-being of communities. I'm still doing some of that work now, and it's, again, it's touching on those cultural determinants, something that we don't traditionally look at, I guess, in Western models of medicine or well-being, and looking at how something like language can be really impactful for people's health. So we did some qualitative work and have a qualitative paper out around that. We're currently doing a, a survey statewide of, of Indigenous languages and well-being, so that's currently running and it's hoped that the results from that survey can be used to advocate for Indigenous languages, not only here, but also globally. And from doing that language work, I was able to get a research scholarship to go over and spend some time in Winnipeg in Canada, which is a central capital city of a central province called Manitoba. So it's right in the middle of Winnipeg. I think I hadn't even heard there was apparently a Simpsons reference of Winnipeg. <laughs> where they're sitting in a car and they say, where are we going? It's like, we're going to Winnipeg or back to Winnipeg or something. But <laughs> anyway, and now doing a lot of work in adolescent health. So working closely with a collaborator out of the Burnett Institute and Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne, looking at adolescent health priorities and ways we can better cater to adolescents' needs and priorities within the health system, doing that locally, here in Australia and also looking globally how we can better cater to the needs of of adolescents. I love that the sound of your work is it sounds to me like it's both philosophical and you know you're you're thinking spiritually and about culture and you're also thinking about how how to make that a practical thing in terms of the biopsychosocial model which we talk a little bit about in terms of health equity and management and I was wondering what the main takeaways you would kind of want us to to learn from how to implement a more culturally safe and appropriate health system. Mm. I've just done an assignment on this as well, so I wish I could have asked you this before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. And I mean, it's really encouraging to know that there's assignments being done on these sorts of things and it's getting people to really think deeply about it. And I should just flag that as, as an Indigenous person, I can only speak from my own mm. experience and acknowledge that we all are diverse. You know, there's over, over 250 different languages, or there were over 250 different languages spoken on this country alone. And when you think about that, you think wow. about the... Lot. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a surprising statistic, yeah, that, and I, I wish it was known more. You know, and while... We use Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the Indigenous to describe a, a population. Mm-hmm. Within that population, we have a greater, or if not equal, if not greater to the cultural diversity of somewhere like Europe. Yeah. And yeah. I think we need to acknowledge that. And that can be both 
really insightful and encouraging and interesting, but it also can be very confronting when you think, it, well, how do we cater to a diversity mm. of people and a diversity of culture when we're so used to not doing that? And I think that's a good thing. I think it's a, a really good thing to think about. And these things are challenging. And I think that's why we're still not quite there in terms of the health system as a whole being able to cater to people. I should also flag I'm going to come from a public health background, which is very much looking at, well, what are the root causes of mm. some of the systemic conditions that we see in our population, but society at large. And I think there needs to be a deeper recognition of the importance of culture for people and a greater flexibility within our healthcare system for being able to equitably cater for people that see the world differently from, I guess, the model that most of us are used to. And, yeah. and that is a, a westernised model of medicine. We have a money system. We, in the last 250 years or so, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been made to adopt a system that is relatively new in comparison to 60,000 plus years of a system that was working. You know, we had the things that we needed. We had our own doctors, we had our own farmers, we had people who all had their roles. So I think that the first step is an acknowledgement of that change and in the short amount of time that we've needed to adapt. And then I think if we look at changing the health system as a whole, it can be really overwhelming. I believe change starts from an individual level. So if you want to change a culture, you need to have individuals acknowledging that maybe something's wrong or not quite right or inequitable. Mm. And from that, wanting to make the change. And education, I, I think there's plenty out there already. If people want to find it, they can find it have conversations and from individuals I think that's where we make our greatest impact and that's how we can change and once we have advocates within the systems I believe that the systems will grow and adapt to be more equitable. Yeah. I hope that it's heading in that direction and um, especially with the conversations that we're having and like with the assignments that we're doing now at university that are just commonplace they really do start important conversations and I don't think they should be overlooked. Like education is how things change and how the next generation becomes a bit more aware of what's out there. So thank you for sharing all of that with us. Would you like to jump into that first question that we had, Anne? Yes, so sticking with our topic of shame, guilt and anxiety, what do you feel that these three things mean and why do we feel these emotions? It was interesting to think about this. I think sometimes your first reaction to, to the word shame, guilt and anxiety is, oh, wow, I don't want to talk about that. That's yeah. a bit shameful. Funny yeah. that. <laughs> but when I thought a little deeper about them, they can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think, again, just reinforcing that I'm one experience and, and talking from one experience, I can't speak for anybody else. But to me, I guess shame... There's a level of consciousness to shame in a, 
in a realization or an acknowledgement that maybe an action or a thought or even a phenomenon that maybe you have benefited from or that you feel a little uncomfortable about it's a conscious realization that there's something not quite right Mm -hmm. guilt on the other hand i think guilt can sometimes be that visceral feeling that you feel that comes from shame but i mean guilt in the other sense is is a legal term you're guilty or you're not guilty and i think it in that it has some connotations to it you know it's you're guilty if you feel guilty or you're made to feel guilty you've committed an offense Mm. or a crime and legally that lands you in a lot of hot water and i think that can be a, a triggering word guilt can be a triggering word particularly i think if you've had an experience with the justice system or if you've come in contact with that before anxiety on the other hand i think and and again there's going to be many different definitions of anxiety i for me i feel anxiety is the result of unmoved shame so shame that has sat and been stagnant and i guess festered and turned into something that is exaggerated and uncontrolled and distorted Mm. and i think that's what anxiety is to me and it I guess it kind of ties in with fear a little bit and I really like the definition of fear being false evidence appearing real uh, I really like that and wow. it's uh, I think for me what that means is that your fear or anxiety is built up of something that either hasn't happened yet or it's in the future or it's in the past and with that we all know that worrying about the past and worrying about the future we've heard it multiple times that it doesn't do anything Mm -hmm. but it's so hard to be in the present moment when you're worried about something that you've done or something that's happened or something that may happen Mm -hmm. i I go back to that definition of fear and so when anxiety is present it's well it's false it's not real it doesn't have any basis in reality if it's not happening now then it's not it's not happening so yeah i I think shame can be useful, I believe, because it stems from a conscious acknowledgement that something's wrong. Guilt, again, I think has that relevance to law and relationship with the legal system, which is flawed, like many of our other systems. And anxiety, yeah, can be the result of some of those things not moving through. Do you think that the definition of shame, especially in the Indigenous sense, does differ, as we kind of suggested a little bit in the introduction? Shame can be used, I guess, in a a kind of funny way. Uh, Shame of, like, why would you do... Yeah, I I can be used humorously. Mm. But I think shame... We want to change that, or I want to change that. Change the normalisation of the word shame and the use of the word shame because Indigenous people were made to feel ashamed of culture, ashamed of who they are. It was something that wasn't okay. Mm. It, It was something that was not quite right. 
and I think it quickly went from a a forced shame that came through assimilation and assimilation policies into an anxiety or an uncomfortability with who you are and I think we're still seeing the trauma of that today and it's personally impacted my family and I think a lot of other families out there where if you were to identify as an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person you were made to feel less of that mm. or your opportunities weren't as great and I believe that's turning around now because it's not something to be ashamed of being an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person is a gift it's a asset it means that you are connected to the oldest living culture in the world. And I think that's something we should all be proud of. I mean, Australia should be proud of that. Anybody who's here should be proud of that. They live in a country that, that has that as a badge of honour. It hasn't always been the case. And I think we're moving collectively to a place where... There isn't shame around that anymore. There's not shame around who you are. It's something to be proud of. I mean, through my work, I'm, I'm seeing that. that People are very proud of who they are and where they come from. And that hasn't come without struggle or challenge. It's good that we're in the place we are now, I think, and we're moving in the right direction. We've still got a way to go. Yeah. And I think as a nation, we need to collectively look at the shame that's come from that history, that history of colonisation, continued colonisation, assimilation. But we need to work through it. Like I said in my definition of shame and anxiety, we can't mm. let that turn into anxiety because that, it doesn't help anybody, it doesn't help anything. Shame, can, I, I think, is good I initially. Mm. Mm. Yeah, shame seems like more of a feeling that you can kind of draw upon to make positive change whereas once you reach anxiety I feel like at that point it's it's negatively impacting your life and mm. it feels more hopeless at that stage and I think as human beings we we need that connection to other people and to culture and that's where we feel like we can belong and I think it makes so much sense that with this history of colonization and just the removal of everything that was once known to Indigenous people, that, that shame and anxiety has become a part of the problem. And I think that's really sad. But it's hopeful to hear from you that so much work is being done and positive changes are being made and we're heading in the right direction. Did you have a question that you wanted to ask next, Dan? So we could go into this a lot, but I'm not sure yeah. if we wanted to go into maybe the mental health as aspect yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. Seth so wanted to talk about that. How do you think these three things impact, for example, on adolescents' mental health? Anxiety is definitely something, you know, it's a condition that affects a lot of people. And that can stem from a lot of things. I'm not saying anxiety just stems from shame. I think mental health there is a more of a recognition of, of mental health nowadays there's more conversations about it which i think are, are really positive if you look at collective trauma and 
the collective trauma experienced by not only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but Indigenous people across the globe, mm. that has come from shared histories of colonisation, assimilation, forced removal, dislocation from culture, dislocation from family, from traditional lands. That continues on for, for many generations where the healing aspects of culture and cultural practice were heavily impacted. And I don't want to say taken away because they weren't taken away. We still had them. And you can see that in the resurgence of cultural practice and the adaptability of, of culture into what we now see, well, in, in Australia as a, a westernised society. But culture then becomes an act of resistance. Things like practising language, practising ceremonies, those sorts of things, art in a way becomes resistance to those traumas and it becomes a mechanism of healing from those traumas. And I think we're starting to have more of a, a recognition that those things are healing and, and can help in those spaces. In terms of some of the things impacting adolescence, it's, it's really broad. And I mean, asking adolescents themselves is something that we need to do more of. That's definitely a gap in research that we need to fill, that we need to understand more mm -hmm. about what are the the health priorities, not just mental health, but what are the health priorities of adolescents and how can not only the health system but social services better cater to those needs and priorities. We, we need to get better at that. But things like systemic racism and discrimination that are ingrained and were foundational to the systems that we all now just take for granted. These are systems that were built on inequity and I think you can't dispute that and if a system's been built on inequity then it really needs to be reshuffled. We really need to rethink yeah. um, those systems and how we get them to be more equitable and it's not equality and I'm very passionate about this that equality and the idea of equality assumes that everybody needs the same thing and that everybody starts the race off the same line. And yep. that's not true. You know, we don't. And there's many populations that suffer inequities in a westernised system because the system doesn't acknowledge the diverse cultural backgrounds of other people. Mm. And that's an issue. And, and I guess what comes from that is this idea of shame, right? We yeah. feel ashamed of not doing that or we feel ashamed of our past history or we feel ashamed of what collectively as a nation we've done to the first peoples of this country. And it's okay to feel that. I think it actually, I think it's good to feel that and perhaps mm. a lot of people are feeling that at the moment. And I guess my advice to people who are feeling that shame or perhaps a little bit of guilt is that do something with it yeah. don't sit in it don't sit in it and beat yourself up acknowledge what is uncomfortable sit with that uncomfortability but don't let it turn into anxiety mm. because if we do that we freeze and we don't, we, we're not productive anymore. We're not moving. And how do you work through something? 
if you're just constantly sitting in a cycle of false evidence, you know? I don't know what to do, what am I supposed to do? Well, there are plenty of things out there. And I, I guess the first thing to do is acknowledge your shame, acknowledge those feelings of uncomfortability, and that's okay, be okay with that. And that's the first thing to do. Before going out and trying to help people or before going out and trying to have a conversation with somebody or trying to save the world, I think we need to look internally a little bit and go, am I okay with these feelings of uncomfortability? Oh, no. Well, once I am, which I guess leads me to how, how you deal with these feelings is acknowledge them. And once you acknowledge something and let it be, most often than not, it goes away. And then you can do something about it. That is so true. It's like when you're really, this is a really menial example, but it's like when you're really, really stressed for an, for an upcoming exam and you think, I haven't studied enough, I don't know what to do about this, it's coming up in a week. You kind of just have to acknowledge that you're stressed and that this is all the time you have left to prepare and then do something about it and do your best. That's kind of how yeah, it can be like really easy just to freeze, <laughs> freeze and, and just you know just give up even, mm. which is really scary. Mm. Yeah, definitely. There are so many questions I want to ask next from our conversation. I'm just trying to think of what would I guess flow on from what we've just talked about. What about you, Anne? Do you have something burning? Some uh, burning question? I was thinking of uh, maybe linking it to a black. Lives Matter event. Mm, that um, has been a very huge, like a big thing on our minds from this year. Yeah, and how I guess people view it as a way, like as an action to yeah. speak out against. Maybe a form of healing as well, as you yeah. were talking about. Yeah, so what were your perspectives? Yeah, again, on, on this, I mean, I'm coming from one experience and coming from, this is my perspective and, and certainly doesn't mean it's it's everybody else's perspective. Look, I think the things that Black Lives Matter movement has brought up, not just in the US, but globally, the uh, Indigenous sovereignty movement, Indigenous rights movement, that is starting to, to become, I guess, more visible to a proportion of the population that hadn't seen it before. Because I think it's important to acknowledge that these sorts of movements, movements of civil rights, movements of equity, fighting out and speaking out against injustice, it's not new. And I think we would be very mistaken if we thought that these sorts of movements hadn't been here before. you know, even in Australia, the, the tent embassy that has been set up is one of, I, I believe it's one of the longest standing protests in the world and still continues today. Mm. And I think that, why haven't we had an acknowledgement of that? Why isn't that something that is talked about? Yeah, We've had pivotal movements here in Australia that I think we should look towards and figureheads here in Australia that have pioneered indigenous rights movements, indigenous sovereignty, protested against injustice, 
you know, we there's Vincent Lingari and the Wayfield walk-off was, we all, all know the song by Paul Kelly about yeah. from little things, big things grow. And some of us have seen the image of the pouring hand through, uh, pouring sand through the hands. And mm. that's something that should be celebrated. That's something that we should talk about when we talk about civil rights. And while movements pioneered by Malcolm X and Dr. King were huge for the African-American population in the US, people of colour globally. I think we need to look more at some of the movements that have happened here and not just rely on things that are happening elsewhere because it's very easy to distance yourself from an issue when it's over there or if it's on a screen. But when it's something that's within the realm of where you live and and impacts your day-to-day life well then that's a little different it Mm. becomes uncomfortable then because it's not something that's happening away from you it's something that directly impacts you so yeah i while i think for for bringing these movements to a population that may not have seen them before i think it's a, a ultimately a good thing but i also think there needs to be action I think movements that we see on social media, the the blackout mm-hmm. campaign, I, I guess it was a campaign on Instagram where everybody turned their screens or posted a black picture for a day, then the backlash that came from that because it was taking up space of people within the movement themselves. There's so much confusion around it and it can turn into an anxiety of people going, oh, well, I don't know what to do. Do I post a black square or do I not? And my opinion is look at your own feelings of uncomfortability and sit with that first and then do something about it. Don't Mm. do something from a place of anxiety. Or from a place of needing to follow... Agreed. What else is yeah, to fit in. absolutely. Because we risk these movements becoming just pop culture, yeah. I guess, and lost in a twenty-four hour news cycle. Or it's fashionable to be woke, which it is now. You know, it's yeah. it's not. Sure. It's not enough just to be aware. You have to then tell everybody that you're aware, and I think that creates its own problem. Yeah, I, I think. We don't need to be telling everybody how woke or how aware we are or, you know, how we're all over everything and we know and, you know... Using all the hashtags. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) And identity politics comes into play with it. You know, if you're not with us, you're against us. And I, Mm. I just think it certain things can become very divisive when we maybe say them from points of anger or, or anxiety or fear. Yeah, but I, I guess in summary, I think there, there are definitely positives that come from bringing movements of civil rights and bringing circumstances of injustice and inequity to populations that may not have had the opportunity to see that before. Mm. Yeah, but again, I think what what do you then do about that once you see it? It's another thing. Yeah, I, I think you need to, to sit with your own uncomfortability and absolutely learn from people of colour. Learn from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. 
if you don't know any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people, go on Google, go on YouTube, go on, look at media. You know, there's plenty of resources out there. We, we have NITV, turn on NITV for five minutes. Or, you know, just engage with things and, and you'll learn through engagement. And it takes work. But ultimately, I think we'll be richer as a society if we all do that work. Just as a personal story, one of my closest friends identifies as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, but she doesn't appear it from the outside. And so in all of her classes, whenever anybody would ask, you know, are there any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people here or does anyone want to share their stories? She'd always sit back because it was always too uncomfortable to say, that's me, like, I have a story. And from reading more into the Black Lives Matter movement and also just doing a bit of reflection on her own family and where she comes from, this year has been such a massive one for her and for embracing her Aboriginality. And it's really, it's pretty amazing to see that happen and that just somebody embracing who they are and now getting to talk to her about how she feels about it and all the, all the things that she's learning and feeling so much more passionate about now that she feels connected is incredible. And I think that can be a really great thing to come out from a movement like this, mm. from other movements within around Australia. Mm. I'm interested to hear about the tent embassy. Yeah, yeah. Like I, d- I might just pick up on the point, you know, we. what does an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person look like? Mm. Is what mm. is it? something that you've seen in a book or something you've seen on television or is it a person is it the person in the classroom you know and i think we need that's something that needs to change collectively for us as a culture is and when we understand some of the history the, the, the assimilation policies the shame around being who you are brought about by enforced legislations then we start to understand why some people are in in the situations that they are and family circumstances that they are unable to trace back where they're from people of mixed heritage which is something that should be celebrated it's not something to feel ashamed of you know the half caste was used as a term quarter caste eight those sorts of words and terms were used to classify people as a degree of breeding out Aboriginality. And that's, that wasn't any, that wasn't people's choice. You know, oftentimes that was something that was forced and it can be very confronting. But I think once we look at that, we realize how offensive something like, are you part Mm. can be to somebody when some of those terms were used as a way to say, well, you're not Aboriginal anymore. Again, that, that, we need to change as a, a society to, to look at, well, what is it, what does an Aboriginal person look like? Well, I don't think we should be asking that question. Mm, no. I don't think that should even be on the cards because it's not what a person looks like that defines who they are. And that's with anything. That is with you, anything, You, you yeah. can't look at a person and say, well, you're this type of person. Mm. You know, I see what you're wearing. You listen to electronic music, <laughs> don't you? And it's like, you can't. You can't assume, yeah. and that, you know that's a, a very broad example. But you know, yeah. one of the an, an auntie said to me once. She said, "It doesn't matter how much milk you put in a cup of tea; it's still a cup of tea." And it's very true. Yeah. And it's very true. I think people should be proud of who they are and where they come from, and you know, it's very encouraging to hear that 
somebody that you know is, is doing that because it is a journey and it's hard for people. It's, it's hard for people that have been directly impacted by some of those histories. So, yeah. Um, and I forgot the question you asked on the end there, sorry. <laughs> I think you mentioned the tent embassy. The tent embassy, and yeah. And I just hadn't heard yeah. that before. I'm interested yeah, to know yeah. more. Yeah. yeah, so the tent embassy, and I probably need to brush on, on my history as well, but the tent embassy was a, a civil rights movement. I believe it was based around getting Aboriginal land back and it sort of centred around the land rights movement okay. but also encapsulating rights broadly. So would it have started back in the 60s or 70s? Yeah, I, and again, I, I feel I should know this and I, I definitely need to brush up on my history. Maybe um, this is something that we can include in like the description with a reference. Some show notes would be great. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Since and, not too sure. Yeah, and <laughs> the, the tent embassy, I believe, it was in the 60s and 70s, possibly early 60s, if it's still one of the, the longest standing protests. And it's outside Parliament House or around near Parliament House, I it's believe, in up. one of the parks um, yeah. across from Parliament House in Canberra. Oh. And so it started with Aboriginal people and some allies, I believe, setting up tents physically in that space to say we're here yeah. and bodies, physical bodies being used as a sign of, of presence. Mm. You know, you can't hide that we're not here anymore. You know, you can't hide that we're here anymore. We are here. And in a very public place and a space that I guess can be seen as a cornerstone of Australian Western society. Here is parliament, here is our leader and Indigenous people coming to that place and saying, well, we're here too. We've always been here. So, yeah, it's it's definitely something that I, I think should be taught more. And I encourage everybody who's listening to go and have a look at, at that. Because when we look at movements like Black Lives Matter, yeah. we see that this has been happening in this country for a long time. Mm. And that's something that I think people can, can get around and be proud of. You know, definitely. resistance peaceful resistance as well it's it's presence and resistance in presence resistance in practicing culture resistance in being who you are when historically you were told you couldn't be that which i think is a really empowering thing i just wanted to ask one last question of you and i was thinking back to what we were talking about when you first got here and how important it is to engage with indigenous people around us when we're trying to help because the people that we're trying to help are the best people to teach us as to how to help and so i want to ask you what your thoughts are on how to be a good advocate for indigenous people especially young people and their mental health because that's what we're most interested about well i think first of all we need to you need to ask yourself why do you feel like you need to help Mm. and what do you feel like you need to help with because if Indigenous people are the best people to do what needs to be done and they know what needs to be done, then you need to consider, well, where is my place? Yeah. Is my place helping? Or Is helping the correct term? Is helping the right thing I should be doing? Maybe yeah. instead of helping another, I need to be helping myself. And instead of the first thought being, oh, my goodness, look what we've done yeah. and we've done collectively how do I fix this? How do I fix them? How do I help them? Mm. Look at, well, those sorts of terms are othering already. So maybe look at, well, why do I feel the need to help? Why am I in a position to help? 
what gives me the right to help? Maybe what I need to do is listen and not speak. Mm. Maybe what I need to do is educate myself and not ask more of people that are trying to do. Or maybe what I need to do is be uplifted, uplift those that are already speaking out. And I think that's a good place for, for allies and advocates to start is internal. Look at yourself first. Try and understand where those feelings are coming from and take more time for, for self-reflection because I, I think often allies and advocates go, oh, I don't know what to do, I need to ask. And it's like, well, first see it with your feelings, look at history, learn, talk to other friends, non-Indigenous friends, speak about how they're feeling. Mm. I don't think the first point of contact is to, to find an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person and say, what can I do to help? Teach me. Yeah, exactly. teach me. It's, yeah. it's, you get burnout. I think there's Indigenous people working in the spaces to better their communities. And I think if we want to build the self-determination of a peoples that have been downtrodden and discriminated throughout the history of this country, then we need to build them up and allow them to define what it is that they need. Just as like I was saying with adolescence, it's allowing adolescence and people to define what their needs are, mm. not somebody else defining what that is. So I guess if there's any takeaways from, from what I think people can do to be better advocates and allies, it's first of all, look at your own feelings and where those feelings come from. Analyse that shame. Don't let it turn into anxiety. And from that, try and understand what it is that makes you want to help. From there, there's plenty of resources out there. Do some research, have a look at, there's plenty of books. Google's an amazing tool. YouTube's an <laughs> amazing tool. You don't have to go and ask somebody. You can look up people talking. You know, And it can become a, a, a confusing space. And I think... Then, once you've done some of those foundational pieces of work on yourself and with your own community, friendship groups, families, those sorts of things, then I think engaging with people is a good thing. And that's when, that's when I think is a place where you can ask people what, what there's more that you can do. But those foundational pieces are really important, I believe. I think that's a really wonderful way to wrap up our episode today. Thank you so much, Seth, for being an incredible podcast guest and being incredibly articulate and inspiring in your thoughts and your work as well. We are so grateful to have you here and to have been able to talk to you. I've learned personally a lot about self-reflection and my own concept of shame and how that might differ, as well as the need to help and I think that's something that I also need to reflect on and did you want to finish off by saying something yeah I thought what you were saying was so interesting and I loved how you tied up all these three things and how yeah. like what we should do like about it you know you talk about these things but then what do you do what becomes of it sitting with that those feelings I thought that was such an interesting concept and something that I'll take with me in my life thank you yeah. very much for being here today Thank yeah, you. no problem. I'm 
Anne Abraham. Thanks for joining us on the Psychic Podcast. This is an Adelaide University Psychiatrist Society project sponsored by PIF. PIF provides information and great events for medical students and doctors interested in psychiatry and mental health. Check them out on Facebook at Psychiatry Interest Form. Share your thoughts by emailing us at uniadelaide.psychiatrysociety at gmail.com.